Good morning. I just had a freak out moment, confession. I looked down at my notes and I thought I grabbed last week's message. <laughs> Did you ever get a pit in your stomach? I was like, all right, Lord, let's do this. You have your Bible that I hope that you do. If you're ready to jump and to dig again into uh, God's word, just say, I'm ready. I'm ready. Let me pray so that I can be ready as well. Father, um, I come to you now with a spirit of great expectation. Father, this is not just another Sunday. There's no such thing. Father, this is the first day of the week. This is the day of the week when you rose, your son rose from the grave. This was the day of the week that you called your church to gather together and celebrate that which was done. This was the day of the week, uh, Lord God, when you uh, saw fit to establish a new thing. Lord, we're just so grateful uh, for what has happened in this room already. We're so grateful for those who are giving their lives for the cause of Jesus and his gospel. But God, how do we go forth? How are we fed? How are we moved? Your Holy Spirit nourishing us through uh, the truths of your scriptures. Father, we take this time very seriously. We find joy in it for sure. But God, bless now. Uh, bless now because it's not just ordinary. Bless now because we see uh, that something miraculous can and will take place uh, when we come ready and expectant uh, for your spirit to teach us. And God, so would you do that now? God, we're asking, we're pleading certainly do much more than I could accomplish through words. May your spirit move, God, we pray in Jesus' name. And all of Harvest, Lancaster, and Myerstown said, amen. 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 Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, we are in our series, as you know, if you've been tracking with us, whether in-house or online or at one of our campuses, new beginnings. God has given our church a new beginning. Uh, he gave the church a new beginning uh, at the start of it all. And the Gospel of Mark, we're reminded, was recorded uh, by John Mark. Having observed the work and the teaching and the ministry of the Apostle Peter, he recorded these words and gave this Gospel to the established church so they could be taken back to the beginning and given, again, a fresh look. Strength and confidence would be given back to them through the knowledge of understanding who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, what Jesus promised to do, going back to the beginning where the establishment of our faith began, the coming of Jesus. Mark chapter 2. Today we're going to gain confidence by looking back at the beginning and seeing this. Jesus Christ offers freedom. Say freedom. freedom. When it comes to freedom, I have this thought. I love my personal freedoms. Anyone love freedom? For sure. Uh, we think of freedom in a lot of contexts. Today, I want you to think of freedom in this context, margin. Say the word margin. You know what a margin is, right? You're looking at your Bible right now, and your, your Bible, it, it has a margin. Uh, I, I really love books, and I especially love old books. This book, by the way, uh, is copywritten um, in the, the dating is 1816. It sits on my shelf in my office, and it's one volume of Calvin's Institutes. And, and you'll notice that just like your Bible and just like books today, it has a margin. This idea of writing and recording and making things legible to be read, this idea of margin has something that's been with us for a long time. And so we think about this idea of margin. Do you, do you know why your Bible has a margin? Do you know why a book 200 years ago has a margin? Do you understand why we haven't abandoned the idea of margins in books? I actually looked this up this week. You want to know why? 
I'm a dork. <laughs> and uh, nerds, if you will, uh, let us all unite together and think of it this way. The margin in your Bible, the margin in your book, whether it be ancient or new, think about what it does. It, it secures and it protects the book. It secures it in the sense that now my, my fingers have places to rest on a book that is 202 years old. Oh, how I wouldn't want the assistity of my fingers to go upon the ink. What else about the margin? The margin guides my eyes, and it, it helps us to see where we, we need to go. Without margin, it would, our eyes will be all over the place. Think about this. It aids us. I've learned this this week because I'm a nerd. If, you're, if the words of your page were to go all the way to the edge, you'd be able to fill so much more in your book. It would take less pages, you think, but it would take you twice as long to read. Margin. It secures, it protects, it guides, it aids. But you know what else? It, it accentuates. The border just captures. And if you're a nerd like me, there's not actually a more beautiful sight and smell than and margin. It aids, it protects, it secures, it guides, it accentuates. And I, I think about margin in our books, and we wouldn't look to read a book without margin, for we'd be so frustrated and agitated by the process. But yet, though we wouldn't read a book about margin, we go about drafting the stories of our lives, so many of us writing right up to the edge of the page. I'm sure that we don't intend to live our lives without margin. I'm sure of it, and here's why. Because I hear people all of the time. What's your number one response to how are you doing? How are you doing? What's the number one response? Just lift up your voice and say, what's the number one response? Give me your response. How are you doing? Somebody said good, and then everyone said the right answer, which was busy. I'm busy. I'm busy. Because somewhere along the line, we found that significance comes in being busy. If I'm not busy, I must not be important. If I'm not busy, if I'm not doing things, if I'm not running here and there. But we're all saying this. How busy are you? Too busy. We want freedom. We want margin in our schedules. I, I believe we want margin in our relationships, margin in our budget, margin in our minds. Uh, did I mention that I really, really, really love freedom and margin? I love margin on my desk for sure. I hate it when my desk starts to get crowded in. When I get really stressed out, ask my wife, I start looking for margin at my home and I start cleaning things. She's like, you don't care about cleaning any other time. And now because you're stressed out, I gotta not be able to find things. Go over there and sit and talk to your Lord a while. She's really good at that. I like margin in my clothes. You, are you guys that way too? Like, I don't like to be like too like tight. And like, if I can't move, it just drives me crazy. Like, I when we brought Joshua home, he was swaddled up like this. Does that not look like torture to you? Like seriously, if you were to wrap me up like that right to go to bed tonight, I would not be able to sleep a wink. But I'm told, I'm told, I'm told that this actually brings security. It makes the child feel secure. It makes them feel protected and it, it makes them feel clearly warm. 
But for me, if I can't move my, I don't sleep with socks on, I got to be able to move my legs and be able to be free. And she's just the other night, Robin kicked me real hard. You're on my side of the bed. I'm told this brings security to a young child. But even now, if we tried to wrap Joshua up like this at nine months, he would freak out. So now he gets a sleep sack. It occurred to me this week, freedom, margin, we understand why we need it. We all long for it. We, we're, we're, but we, we find ourselves going back, going back, going back, going back to situations like this. I think a lot of us approach life like we approach the swaddling of a child. And what happens is when we're swaddling ourselves with our schedules and with our busyness and with a, we kind of fear the margin and we, we kind of feel more secure and we feel more important when we just make make lots of things pressing in on our schedules. Could you understand what I'm saying? And then all of a sudden, that thing which initially brought us security, all of a sudden, that busy schedule that made me feel important is now all of a sudden my stress. Uh, Your spiritual life can be just like this as well. Many people have lost confidence in their faith and they've turned to religion. They've turned to activity. They've turned to busyness. They've turned to coming and going. And what happens for so many people when they're seeking to fill the void in their lives, they begin to build walls and they make rules and we plan activities and we set unbearable expectations on ourselves. And then we begin to judge ourselves and others because they're not upholding the religious boundaries that are supposed to be pressing in and keeping us secure. Like swaddling a baby, uh, these restrictions can be helpful, but then as we grow If more expectations are thrust upon us, we can wake up and realize that we have no spiritual margin left, that our souls are suffocating by the demands, our hearts are agitated under the busyness, and our spirits are searching for the freedom that we were initially promised we would receive when we gave our life to this thing. If you've ever experienced the claustrophobia of spirit, then today you can begin to relate and understand the climate that existed in the day that Jesus lived. If you've ever felt that claustrophobia of spirit, if you've ever felt like I just can't and I have no margin, I'm just not sure. And if I don't, people are going to think. Have you ever felt like that? You see, here's the big idea today. Jesus has come. Jesus has come. Jesus came and he is here to give us freedom. To give us freedom from the restriction, from the overbearing restriction of religion. It's not about religion you're going to see today. It's about the relationship and the presence of Jesus in our lives. Today we see that Jesus came to set us free from the tourniquet of religion and provide margin for our souls. John 8, 31 says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. 
because you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. All in favor of hearing the truth today, say freedom. Freedom, Freedom. here we go. Take a look at your text. We're in Mark chapter 2. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Uh, You remember uh, the tension that was building last week. Jesus had two conflicts with the religious leaders. And so this tension is beginning to build. And you remember the tension first came because uh, he said to the paralytic before he healed him, your sins are forgiven. They weren't super happy about that. They were anxious about a Messiah coming, but they were not thinking that he would be God and able to forgive sins. They found that to be blasphemy and they confronted Jesus, you remember. Then, um, after calling Levi the tax collector, uh, he threw a party. Matthew threw a party, invited Jesus. Jesus came over to the party. And you remember what the religious leaders said about this. Look at verse 16. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, and they wouldn't read it like this. When he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they would read it more like this. When they saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors. He said to his disciples, notice they pulled the disciples aside, it seems. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus overheard it, and he says to them this. They're going to love this. Those who, were, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Tension is mounting. Tension is building. You're going to, this is going to add to three more conflicts that Jesus is going to have with the religious leaders. There'll be five conflicts in total. And over the next three conflicts, you're going to see this. Jesus gives freedom over the religious oppression of his day. Three ways Jesus frees us from religion. Here's the first one. Jesus frees us from the forced piety of religion. Jesus frees us from the forced piety of religion, and he gives us flowing passion. Take a look at the text, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And now the and there doesn't necessarily mean that they were together fasting. Uh, The Pharisees could have been fasting for one reason. And uh, John's disciples may have been fasting for another reason. Why may have John's disciples have been fasting? Anybody remember where uh, John the Baptist is right now in this text? He's in prison. That's right. And so while they're two groups who are fasting, the people are noticing that they're fasting, and so they come. So the people come to him, to Jesus, and they say, listen, why, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? I mean, why is it, if you call yourself a religious leader, why are you not participating in the religious practices of the day? And I think that's a major question in and of itself, but think about the context of this passage. Where did we last see Jesus in this text? He's in somebody's home. He's gathered up with who? tax collectors, and he's gathered up with sinners, and so you kind of get this idea that perhaps uh, this party may have just gone down on a Sabbath day. (laughs) Could it be that not only Jesus is willing to eat with tax collectors and sinners, but he's willing to even eat on a fasting day? He 
he's willing to have a party with sinners on a day when the religious people had set aside to not be eating anything? Now, the question in and of itself isn't a bad question. Is there anything wrong with the question? Hey, Jesus, why is it that the religious leaders are fasting, but you're choosing not to fast? Not a bad question. Second question that comes to my mind. Is Jesus kind of demonstrating that fasting isn't good or that fasting is bad in some way? I mean, is Jesus against fasting? Of course not. Jesus wasn't against fasting. He couldn't be against fasting, for fasting was prescribed in the Old Testament. Uh, You would know that this, though, that they were only prescribed and they were only commanded to fast one time a year. They were called to fast on the Day of Atonement, the day that the priest would go into the Holy of Holies and they would make sacrifice and he would sprinkle the blood on and then they would, the forgiveness of sins would fall upon the nation and they were called to fast on that day to participate in the process of repentance. After the age of captivity, we know that four more fastings were, were poured onto this thing. But now, by the time that Jesus spoke these words, the Pharisees added to the process two days a week that they called upon themselves and others to fast. And if you would like to participate with them, although I wouldn't suggest it for these purposes, Monday and Thursday would be the days. Why Mondays and Thursdays? Because they said so. Is fasting wrong? Is fasting bad? Was Jesus against fasting? No, he was against hypocritical fasting. Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 and 18, uh, you may remember this passage. Jesus says this, when you fast, he's talking to his own disciples now. When you fast, look, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they receive their reward. But when you have fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus wasn't against fasting. He was against hypocrisy. He was against forced piety. He was against you taking your idea of how it's supposed to go down and pressing it upon somebody else and you taking upon you the authority of what God would desire somebody else to do if God hadn't spoken on that matter. He was against the show. He was against the show. He was against the... Look at me, side of religion. You see, these guys couldn't just fast. They had to fast like this. Uh, Give me your best religious fasting face on a count of three. One, two, three. Best religious fasting face. Go ahead. You got, got a lip? Stick it out real quick. One, two, three, go. You got a church face? Do you have a church face? I mean, is there a way that you go about looking during the week? Is there, is there the you that goes to work and you're kind of agitated and, and pretty short-tempered and you kind of are this way uh, outside of these doors, but you're like, hey, church is coming. We got to make sure we put on our church face. And hey, listen, I, I know you were playing that video game yesterday, but don't bring it up in Sunday school today because 
You see, Jesus wasn't against fasting. He was against others pressing upon them their idea of what it meant to be spiritual. If you have a church face, please take it off. If the face that you bring here on Sunday isn't the face that you take with you on Monday, you're harming the name of Jesus. For what would, come, what would happen if that friend of yours actually did come? And they see you lifting your hands high and swaying back and forth in praise and he watched you slam your fist just this past week. You see, the Lord's not against fasting. He's against hypocrisy. And I love how Jesus handles this. You see, to fast, they, they had to put their sad face on. And whether they were sad or not, they had to act sad. Whether they were... Look at the text. Like, well, come on, why, why aren't you fasting? And Jesus said to them, love this, ready? Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as the bridegroom is with them, they can't fast. He says, look, life with me is not a funeral. Life with Jesus is not a funeral. Life with Jesus is like a wedding. You see, in this context, Jesus says, look, I'm the bridegroom. We all know this imagery. By the way, the religious leaders would have known this imagery as well because they would have saw themselves as the bride of Yahweh. And so when Jesus says, I'm the bridegroom, all kinds of emotion must have been coming up in them. He's like, I'm the bridegroom. And when the bridegroom is present, if you're the party of the bridegroom, how inappropriate would it be on somebody else's wedding day and you're in the presence of the bride or groom to have your hippo, hippo face on? That's your hypocrisy face. It'd be inappropriate. And what I want you to see, Jesus says, is look, I'm the bridegroom and I'm here. And when I'm here, I bring joy into the presence of my people. God finds no pleasure in you acting sad because you find it pious. What I want you to see is this. There is freedom in the presence of Jesus. What brought freedom in this context? What brought freedom to them from the religious pursuit? What brought freedom to his disciples? It's the presence of Jesus. Say the word presence. The presence of Jesus, write that in your margin. The presence of Jesus. The presence of Jesus brings freedom. Jesus desires for us to celebrate his presence. He longs for our hearts to be filled and overflowing with passion. And there will be seasons of your life when you'll grieve, and that will be appropriate. What's inappropriate is when you act sad, when you ought to be demonstrating the joy of the Lord. freedom. And then Jesus goes on. He's like, look, look, nah, the bridegroom is here and we're throwing a party, okay? Think about the imagery here. Jesus just came from a party. Who was at the party? Tax collectors and sinners. You want to know why? You want to know why we weren't fasting on the day that you set aside? Because I was celebrating for the bride had found the groom and sinners were in my presence and they'd found forgiveness and there's no mourning in that. We can't mourn in the forgiveness of sins. It's a party. Wow. But Jesus says, but note this. Note this. 
the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast on that day. The day will come when the presence of the Lord will be taken from them. The day will come, and he's alluding to what? He's alluding to the day where he will hang upon the cross. He'll, he's alluding to the day when he will be buried, and they will have to grieve his absence. And in that day, we would have great grief, and I would apply this to us as well. If you leave the presence of the Lord, grief is there. What is hell but the absence of our Savior? What will hell be but that God won't be there? What of the additional punishment? What of this punishment? God's not there. If you don't see that as punishment, you've missed the point of salvation. Grief is found in the absence of Jesus. That will be the time to grieve. That will be the time to grieve. Yes, our hearts should, deep, should share deep grief for those who don't have the presence of Jesus in our life. And that's the nature of being a follower of Jesus, isn't it? That we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep at the exact same time. But you know, even as they would have wept those three days, you do remember how that ended, right? You do remember, even though they may have grieved him in the tomb, what happened? Easter happened. Resurrection Sunday happened. And on Resurrection Sunday, what do we do around here? We throw a party. Jesus is not dead. His presence is not kept from us. So we rejoice. And so we rejoice. And Jesus says, look, it is so inappropriate for you to be pressing your piety upon my disciples right now. So inappropriate. What I've brought is a brand new thing. I'm bringing a new thing. Here's how inappropriate it is. Here's what he says. It'd be like sewing a piece of unshrunken cloth on an old garment. Any seamstresses here? Awesome. My sister sews, and she's very good at it. She's a professional seamstress, and she would tell me all about it. She would tell me this is true, that the one thing you wouldn't want to do is take an unshrunken piece of cloth and use it to patch an old garment for when you would wash that garment, it would shrink, and what would happen? You'd have a bigger hole than before. You see, it's like this. You calling upon my disciples to fast, it's like sewing a patch that won't hold. It's like this. It's like someone who puts new wine into old wineskins, and uh, those who would um, ferment wine, they would use goat skins, and they would put fresh, unfermented wine into goat skins, and as it would ferment, it would expand with the gases and so forth, and so that would begin to stretch, and once it was stretched, it would lose its elasticity. So the one thing you would never do would be put another valuable batch of wine back into an old wineskin, for when it would ferment again, when it would expand again, what would happen? It would explode. What's he saying? I'm bringing a new thing. I'm bringing a new thing. You can't bring, you can't take the joy that I'm bringing and try to patch it into your old religious system. You can't hold me in the old way that you're seeking to find the Father from bringing a new thing. It's a brand new thing. My presence, my coming has initiated a new thing. Jesus is not an add-on in your life. Jesus is not an accessory. 
He's not an accessory to the old way you did church. He isn't an accessory to the old way you used to think. He's not an add-on. He's not an upgrade. He is the only new thing we have to pursue. The old covenant has been replaced by a new way. And why could Jesus say this? More questions. Is Jesus against the Old Testament law? Is that what he's saying? Is Jesus against the law? Is he against the, the Torah? I mean, is he against the law that was delivered by Moses? Would he want us to bust up those tablets that God provided to his people? These Ten Commandments, are they not for us today? Heaven forbid we begin to think that. Although it's being taught today for sure. You see, Jesus isn't against the law. He's not against the God-given Old Testament. He's not against the law of Moses as well. But here's what we know. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. What did he do? He came to fulfill it. We're like, how do we get a new thing if we don't destroy or we don't like think it's better or we don't want to kind of wipe out the old thing? Well, it's kind of like an acorn kind of like an acorn. You see, there's a lot of different ways that you could go about um, not having an acorn anymore. You see, if I wanted to abolish uh, the acorn, I would just kind of drop it to the floor, and I could seriously, like, stomp it out, and, like, that thing is gone. You can abolish something for sure and not want it and destroy it. But on the flip side, there's another fundamental way for this to cease being an acorn. There's a fundamental way for the Old Testament law to cease its demand to cease its judgment upon us. You see, if this acorn finds its fulfillment, it'll become a huge, glorious, life-giving oak tree, won't it? You see, the Lord didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. He didn't come to crush and destroy and to wipe out God's moral standard. Heaven forbid we ever think that. What he did is he came and he actually fulfilled it. He actually fulfilled. He did what we couldn't do. He, did, he met the righteous demands of the law. And in fulfilling it, it has been transformed into a fundamentally drastic, gloriously new thing. It's a new covenant. It's a new way. Jesus fulfilled the demands of the law of Moses. The burden and judgment of the law have been lifted on the cross. Jesus became the perfect sacrifice for us. Life is not a funeral with him, for the funeral's already taken place. It is a glorious, glorious wedding celebration.
And so when we come into his presence, it's like coming under the shade of a glorious new thing. The funeral is over. Today we celebrate that we are new citizens. We're a new creation placed in a new family and counted amongst the citizenry of a new kingdom. This is no time to grieve, Jesus says. It's a time to celebrate and to tell somebody. Jesus came to free us from religion. He came to free us from forced piety and oppression that others would demand upon us. Which leads us to the second point. Jesus frees us from the heavy burdens. He frees us from heavy burdens. And he replaces it with heartfelt blessing. Take a look at the text again, verse 23. Mark, recording that, goes on and says, while we're on the subject of conflict with religious leaders, let me give you another example. Look at verse 23. One Sabbath, what's that tell us? This may have not been an actually consecutive account. It may have not happened in the order of the timeline, but Mark records it for us because it falls in theme with what's happening. So there's been conflict with religious leaders. Jesus is freeing us from religion. Let me give you early church. Let me give you church today another example of how this occurred. So on one Sabbath day, when did this account, when did this occur? We're not 100% sure, but we know it teaches a similar point. Not to belabor this, but I want you to study your Bible with accuracy. I want you to study your Bible with efficiency. And so one Sabbath, a similar thing occurred. He was going through the grain fields. And um, as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, and what were they saying to him? Look! Which, by the way, like, are we in first grade now? Like, is that totally how you do a tattletale move? Look. Mom, look. Look at what uh, he's doing. And what are, uh, so, well, look. We seem rather immature here, but we're looking now. Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And you begin to think to yourself, like, really? Like, could these guys get any more petty? You know? You look at the last thing, and you're like, the whole fasting thing, that kind of makes sense to me. But like, literally, like, they're picking the head off of some grain. Like, I mean, is this a, does it get any more petty than this? You see, to us, this looks really petty. To the religious leaders, this is actually ratcheted way up. You see, even more than fasting, they had this thing about the Sabbath that put the Sabbath as like numero uno on the list. If you were going to be seen as a real religious follower, then you would know the rules about the Sabbath. And it's one thing for you to break one of our days of fasting, but for you to be messing around on the Sabbath? You call yourself a rabbi and you're doing this? So not only does it appear petty, but um, it's actually flat out wrong. What they were doing wasn't illegal, by the way. Um, say it's, just say, it's in the Bible. Say that. 
It's in the Bible. Deuteronomy 23, 25 says this. If, you're, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's grain. There it is. Say it's in the Bible. Psh, who knew? If you're walking through your neighbor's field and you just happen to be hungry and you didn't pack your satchel, you can go ahead and pick some grain off of there and you can eat your fill, but you better not put a sickle to it and you better not pack your bag. You just are able to eat enough just to have your fill. But you see, it seems to me that the Pharisees aren't just ticked off that they're pulling some some little bit of wheat off the grain. What's actually ridiculous about this charge is not that they're upset that they're pulling the grain off. It's that they're willing to call plucking grain off of the top as work. They're like, oh, got him. You see that? Plucking, plucking the head off of the grain. And you know what really got it? You know what really got them? They probably rubbed their hands together. They were threshing on the Sabbath. It's kind of like going to church and being like, can you believe they clap there? And I caught somebody raising their hands. I'm not trying to make light. But what I'm trying to show us is that in every generation, and it will happen in ours if we're not careful, there will be things that we will look for because we'll say, why isn't he clapping? And we'll make judgments and say, why aren't they raising their hands? For don't they know that really spiritual people would clap their hands? We must be very careful, church. Here's the thing. The Pharisees weren't just law keepers. They were law makers. They weren't just keepers. They were creators. And what they had began to do is say this. Pursuing the Lord is like climbing a ladder. And so they would keep the Sabbath and they would kind of come up upon the top of the ladder and they'd look around and they'd be like, well, but God's not here yet. Give me another ladder. Let's make some more rules. And so they would just add another ladder to the ladder and they would climb up some more rungs and say, certainly God will be pleased with us now. And so we'll, we'll climb some more rungs. They get to the top of the ladder again. And what's there? More air. Where's God? Let's add another ladder of rules. Exodus 20 verse 10 for sure prohibited work on the Sabbath, but over time the ladder, the ladder, the ladder that regarding the Sabbath became so incredibly oppressive upon the people. It came to a point where you couldn't do anything and actually what began to happen is you created more work trying not to work. So resting became work you see how maddening religion can be? We work to find our blessing. We work to get our freedom. We work to find peace. And all that brings is anxiousness and anxiety. And Jesus is ready to teach them something. And so he says to them, okay, we're going to vote on how well we think this is about to go over. Have you never read what David did? If you don't believe that Jesus didn't just pack a little bit of heat in the words that he spoke, 
You just need to read it again. He's talking to Pharisees. <laughs> He's talking to religious leaders. He's talking to people who prided themselves in studying. And he's like, what? Well, you haven't ever read? You never read this? Okay, well, let me tell you. Have you never read what David did? Clearly you haven't read it because if you did, you would know this. When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him. David was uh, about the Old Testament. He and his men were out uh, fighting and they were just completely overwhelmed and hungry. And so they came to the town of Nob. Keep reading where the tabernacle is. And so here's what happens. He comes to the tabernacle and he, he enters the house of God. And in the time of Abiathar, uh, the high priest, and here's what you need to know. Ahimelech was actually the priest of that day. Abiathar was actually the son who would become the high priest. You're like, Jerry, why are you telling me this? Because I want you to have the defense for your scripture. Somebody will come to you and say, look, there's something wrong with your Bible. He says, Abiathar, it was actually Ahimelech. It's so, it's totally fitting given that Ahimelech was alive, Abiathar was alive at the time to say in the days of because Abiathar would become the more prominent. You're like, I have no idea. We go back and listen to it again. <laughs> What's the point? The Bible is accurate in all that it says, the Bible is inerrant. It's been canonized. It's been given to us by the Holy Spirit. And when something doesn't make sense, study it more. And so the point, though, is the high priest at that time, in the time of Abiathar, of the high priest, and he went into him and he ate the bread of presence. Say presence. Which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And also gave it to those who were with him. Don't you know this story? David's walking and he's famished and his men need food. And he walks into the tabernacle. And you know the ceremonial laws, don't you? The ceremonial laws would say that bread of presence is to be baked fresh every week. And those 12 loaves, which represent the 12 tribes, are to be placed on that table in a certain way. And the priest would come in and they would change out the bread every single week. And because that bread is sacred, because that bread is set aside as holy, only the priests were supposed to be able to eat that bread. Do you not remember that God did not condemn it when David came in and Ate the bread? What's the point? David was permitted to do that which was against the ceremonial law. David was permitted to do that which was against the ceremonial law. Why? Because the moral law of loving people, the moral law of caring for those in need, the moral law will trump the ceremonial law every time. Do you not know? Do you not know that here is an Old Testament inference to this? This, this isn't even a new thing that I've brought. This is something that's been around even from the time of David. That, those, that the moral law of God will always trump the ceremonial law. And he's like, and if he can break a ceremonial law, how much more can I make? up your made up one drop the mic 
You see, Jesus fulfilled the moral law. He's not sinning in this instance. He's actually showing us what it means to live out the life that God's called us to live. He's showing us how to navigate. He fulfilled the moral law because Jesus finished the ceremonial one. We no longer come back to the altar with the blood of goats and lamb and bull, as Hebrew says. We don't come back to the altar over and over again. We don't tie a rope around a priest's foot so he may enter into the holy place for the veil has been torn and we can enter into his presence. But what still remains? The moral law of God. Jesus fulfilled the moral law. He finished the ceremonial law. And man, he frustrates the civil, oppressive, made-up laws of religious leaders, doesn't he? He fulfilled the moral law. He finished the ceremonial law. And he frustrates the oppressive law of your made-up, my made-up religion. Jesus' point is clear. The moral law, the needs of people will always trump our religious traditions. How do we know the difference then? How do we know the difference then between man's laws and God's laws? Because that's really important in this. How do we then know the difference? Look at the text. Jesus tells us, verse 27. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. You want to know how you're following one of God's laws? You want to know when you're following one of God's laws? God's laws brings freedom. God's laws bring peace. God's laws were given to us for our refreshment. God's laws were to give us life, but religious oppression always brings pain. It always brings frustration. It always brings spiritual claustrophobia. But when you are following the laws of our God, we find the fullness of life therein. Man's laws bring heavy burden, but what, did, what, did Jesus's, what does Jesus bring? Heartfelt blessing. And so Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the author of the Sabbath, he says in the next verse. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. By the way, I'm God. By the way, I'm God. I know why the Sabbath was created. And your interpretation of it is wrong. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the bridegroom that brings joy. I am your bread of presence. I fulfill you. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. The rest we find in the Sabbath will only be found in him, not in you not mowing your grass. Sit in the presence of your Lord. It's not in what you do or what you don't do, but it's in the presence that you seek where we find the fullness of God's rest and Sabbath in our lives. For this principle still stands. God desires for you to find Sabbath. He desires you to find Sabbath in him. Final thing, and we must move. Jesus frees us from religious constriction to righteous conviction. Jesus frees us from religious constriction and he gives us then in its place a righteous conviction. Looking at the text, chapter 3, verse 1, the final conflict. 
And he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. We're not quite sure what happened to his hand. He could have been born this way. Something could have happened. And so what's happening in response, though, they're watching Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. I mean, these guys are just on him now. I mean, how twisted is this? How, how messed up do they have the law of God for sure? That they would care more about trapping Jesus and breaking a law than they would in seeing this man actually receive healing in his life. Verse 3. And Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. Say presence. The presence of Jesus brings freedom. The presence of the bridegroom brings freedom. The bread of presence, Jesus is the bread of presence, isn't he? He brings fulfillment and freedom. And here he takes the man with the withered hand and he comes, come near me. Come near me. Come near, come into my, come. How present is the Lord in this man's life right now? And with the man standing right beside him, he looks over at the religious leaders and he said to them, come on, you tell me. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Is it better on the Sabbath to save a life or to kill it? Is it, is it, if I have the power to do good, is it better to do good right now or not? You see, the religious, they would love to stay in the gray. They would love to be able to make the rules up as they go. But what does Jesus do? He principalizes it. He wants us to live with righteous principle. He makes it a principle of the matter. Come on now, which is better? To do good and for me to heal this man or for you to be murdering me in your heart right now? Come on, tell me. Who's doing what right now? Jesus is preparing to do good even as the religious leaders are preparing to murder him. Can you see the folly of religion? Can you see the place that it could take us? This is what's so messed up, the hypocrisy, the hypocrisy. While they're standing there judging Jesus, they're standing there, they're standing there scheming, hoping he messes up so they can take him to the place of a crucifixion, and then they're judging him. They're plotting murder while, being, while judging him. Have you ever found yourself judging somebody for not doing a good thing your way? Why do they share the gospel that way? And why, what makes them throw that event? And what, do, do, do they know? And We have to be very careful, church. Jesus says this. Come on now. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? And how do they respond? How do they respond? How do they respond? Silence. Cowards. 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 If you're going to be a hypocrite, own it. If you're going to judge people, say it.
to sit there and judge in your heart, to sit there and let it pass by with a porcelain smile on your face is not fooling the Lord. Repent of our judgment. Repent of our pious foolishness. Let us repent of our forced earning of God's blessing that we press upon people. Let us repent of the weight of burden that we place upon the hearts of those. We should be about no religion that keeps people from coming into the presence of Jesus. We should be against no religion that withholds his healing power and presence in another person's life. We should be about no religion that judges one to the point of not wanting to come near. For the Lord says, for what is Jesus' response in this? If you think you're doing well by judging but just not saying anything and offering self-control, Jesus isn't pleased. Deal with your judgment. For he looked around at them with anger and grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, come on, stretch out your hand. He's angry. Jesus is angry. He's angry. He's grieved. This is how we can be angry and still not sin. He's indignant at their religious constrictions. He's indignant that they would want to keep his healing power from touching this man. He's, he's... Friends, we got one job. Show people Jesus. We got one job. Invite people into the presence of Jesus and remove any human obstacle that stands in the way. For here is the holiness of God on display full mercy, full justice, all kindness, indignant frustration. And he looks at the man and says, come on, give me your hand. And he heals him. There's not one evidence of work in this text. He doesn't rub his hands together. He doesn't put together a potion, nothing. There's no work in this. He just says, come on, give me your hand, you're healed. And immediately the Pharisees lobby with the Herodians. Look at the text. Stretch out your hand. It was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians. By the way, the Herodians were political leaders that the Pharisees couldn't stand. But the enemy of my enemy becomes my friend. They began to counsel about how they could destroy him. The more we're concerned about protecting our practice, when we're more concerned about protecting our practice than we are pursuing people, we must repent. When we're more interested in forging tradition and allowing it to trump the forgiveness others can find, we must repent. When my perceived rightness trumps my pursuit of true righteousness, I must repent. When those things are evident in my life, I'm on the wrong side. For when Jesus preached, behold, the time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. He was calling sinners to drop their sin. And he was calling the religious to drop their religion and find him. Does Jesus call us to certain practices today? I don't want to be misheard today. Does Jesus call us to practice certain things today? Yes. 
He calls us to practice those things which will enable us to delight in his presence. Jesus calls us to practice those things which will enable us to delight in his presence. Hear me. Why does he call us to gather? Because this is the body of Christ. Why does he call us to sing? Because he inhabits the praises of his people. Why does he call us to a point of baptism because he wants us to declare our relationship with all. Why does he bring us before the Lord's table? Because we're gonna partake of the presence of his body in illustrative form. Why does Jesus call us to give for we are the extension of his hands and his feet to those in need? The things that Jesus calls us to are not have-tos, they're want-tos. And what makes them want-tos? They delight us by bringing us into the presence of Jesus. And when you can practice religion and not find the presence of Jesus in your activity, it's done. It's done. When you can't find Jesus in the presence of your activity, it's done. God wants to free you. He wants to free you from the constriction of religion. He wants you to be driven by righteous conviction. It's not rules that make us temporarily feel secure. It's not practices that swaddle us in tight. It's the freedom that Jesus brings. It's the margin that he desires to place within your spiritual frame that brings life. He wants to set you free. He wants to set you free. Would you stand with me? Father, I want to pray that you would bring the spirit of your freedom over this place, that you would release us from the grip that binds, Lord God, that you would stop, cause us to stop trusting in the religious activity that we pursue. God, we come into this house not because we're afraid someone will judge us if we don't. We come into this house because your, your presence is here. Yes, your presence goes with us for how would people even know who would we be lest your presence go with. But Lord, your manifest presence, we believe, inhabits the praises of your people. And so Father, as we sing, would you remind us again of your freedom, of the delight that we have in you. And so God, now we sing. We're free. We're free. 